head. And if there's any children here, kids here, uh, kindergarten to second grade who'd like to go to children's church, you can do that by going through this door over here by the piano. Hopefully that'll alleviate a little congestion. You guys will have a little more breathing room. If you want to send your kids to children's church, if not, if your kids get a little wiggly and uh, you, you feel free to go out in the foyer or downstairs, and I, I think it's the closed circuit TV. I think is working downstairs. I'm not sure if that's if it's on or not, but you can check that out. And uh, if you could open your Bibles to Revelation chapter four, Revelation chapter four. Last book of the Bible, if you're using a pew Bible, Revelation chapter 4. and uh, We are studying through the book of Revelation. For those of you that's your first time here, we're just kind of working our way, studying through the book of Revelation. And today we come to chapter 4. One of the, the great chapters in the whole Bible, um, chapter 4 and I think 5 taken together. So we'll study chapter 4 this Sunday and chapter 5 uh, next Sunday. But let me just read Revelation chapter 4, and then we'll dig into it. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they were created." And have their being. Several years ago, my wife was home and she got a knock at the door. And uh, she opened the door and there was this this guy standing there. She didn't recognize him. Kind of nicely dressed. And he said, hi, you don't know me. Uh, I said, this is kind of a weird request. He says, but uh, I make commercials. And he says, I'm looking for a place to film a commercial. And I was just driving down your street and I could kind of see your backyard from the road. And... You know, we have some trees in our backyard. I mean, it's nothing any different than probably a lot of your yards with some trees. But for whatever reason, he saw it, and he's like, I'd like to film a commercial in your backyard. And we're like, okay. Uh, 
okay, whatever. We can film a commercial in our backyard. And so then he told her, too. He said, now, by the way, he goes, uh, your husband's going to be excited about this. He said, because there's two celebrities coming to this commercial. And this commercial, he goes, and when, when your husband finds out who it is, he's going to go crazy. So we're like, oh, I wonder who this celebrity is in my house. You know, it's just totally random. Um, this totally true story. I have the pictures to prove it. Um, but anyway, so... So finally, a couple of days later, the day of the commercial comes, and this, you know, the, the crew comes. The celebrities haven't come yet. So I, I go up to the, the producer, and I'm like, so who, who are these celebrities who are coming to my house? And he said, well, it's Dick Raditz and Johnny Pesky. Uh, so, and, and I look at him completely serious, and I'm totally dead serious. And I, I said, who's that? Um, <laughs> and he looked at me like I had three heads. Right? Now, in my defense, I wasn't born and raised here in New England, so I haven't drunk the Kool-Aid like you have, you know, growing up over the years. And, and two, here's the other thing, you know, may think it's weird, I don't watch sports, okay? Ask me about sci-fi movies, I'm a ninja, all right? Sports, not so much. Uh, I don't, you know, I know, you know, I watch the Super Bowl and I know about Tom Brady and Wes Walker and some other players, I guess, but, you know, they play football, so I... I know what sports are, but I just, I'm just not a sports guy. I never have been. My dad's a huge sports nut. I just never really got into it, but whatever. So anyway, that's why I didn't know who it was. And, uh, and for the other five people in the room who, who don't know who those people were, uh, you know, Johnny Pesky is, is a Red Sox great, and uh, uh, Dick Raditz was a relief pitcher, I came to find out. But, you know, I, I don't even know who these guys are. And so, but they tell me that they're like Red Sox legends coming to your house. So I get on the phone. I call up Rich Chamberlain, who at the time was serving as our youth pastor here. He's now pastoring a church in Cohasset. And I called him and I'm like, and I, he's a Red Sox guy. And I was like, Rich, I'm like, do you know who Dick Raditz is? He's like, yeah, you know, relief pitcher from 19 whatever to 19 whatever. I'm like, do you know who Johnny Pesky is? He's like, yeah, I know who Johnny Pesky is. I mean, like, why are you asking me these lame questions? I'm like, they're at my house in my backyard. <laughs> Why are they at your house? I said, does it really matter? Do you want to come over and meet them? And, and I don't know if he hung up the phone or if it was just like sort of swinging, you know. <laughs> but he got, you know, he got his Red Sox hat, which he kind of always has with him. And next thing I know, he's, I mean, at his, he's at my house. And now he's responding appropriately. He's got like the big eyes like, wow, Johnny Pesky, you know. And he gets his hat signed by these guys. And he, he's like in the pictures with them. And, uh, you know, to think that some random person in Red Sox nation had to be picked to have Red Sox legends at their house. And, and the person who gets picked is a total tool like me who doesn't know who they are. You know? Like, who are you? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't appreciate who I had right there. As I was thinking about Revelation chapter 4, I was having a little deja vu with that experience. Because Revelation chapter 4 is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible because it's a, a glimpse into heaven. It's like we get to look through the peephole of heaven and we get to see God Himself on His throne. You know? I mean, so many chapters in the Bible talk about what God does and how God acts and how God moves in this world, but we don't always get to see God Himself in heaven on His throne. There's very few chapters in the Bible that kind of give us a sneak peek into who God is and where He is. And this is one of those chapters. And I just had this great fear that as I studied it, I, I would be like with Johnny Pesky, be like, huh, what's that? Like I would miss the gravity of what we're about to look at here in this chapter. That, that I would, It would totally sort of go over my head 
because I'm so preoccupied with, you know, things in my life and issues and what I'm going to eat at lunch and, you know, sports or sci-fi movies or whatever it is you're into. We just get into our little worlds and we don't hardly ever think about God. We're oblivious to Him. And yet, He is the greatest thing that's going on in the universe. And we're just, I am just totally, I don't think of Him hardly as often as I should or worship Him. And so Revelation 4 and 5, we're going to study 5 next week because the two really go together. They're the theological center of this book. It's not the center of the book in terms of the chapter count because obviously there's 22 chapters in Revelation. So chapter 4, we're like at the front end. So in that sense, it's not the center. But in terms of the theology of this book, God on His throne, reigning over the world, sovereign over human history, this is the message of the book for a people who are persecuted, discouraged, struggling in their faith, for these Christians in Revelation who felt weak and exhausted and at the end of their ropes and not knowing what to do, they get this great vision of the awesome God. And I'm just praying this morning that it won't just go right over our heads like, huh? Who's that? But that we'll be able to just appreciate who God is and have a greater vision of His majesty. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So John, the Apostle John, has this prophetic visionary experience. I don't, can't explain how it happens. I've, I haven't had one like this, but you know, God grants these experiences. And, and so he, he lifts John out of this world in some sort of visionary way and brings him, sort of vacuums him up to heaven to see God in his throne. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, where prophets in the Old Testament get their call to be prophets, what you find very often is that prophets have these kinds of experiences. Sometimes at the beginning of their ministry, God will sort of kick off their ministry by taking them up into His presence. And what they'll see is they'll typically see God on His throne in the royal courtroom with the angels sort of standing around the king. So the idea is like they've been summoned in the presence of the king's royal residence in His throne room. They hear from the king. The king gives them a message. Then they go back to us regular folks and say, hey, God has spoken to me. The king has a message and for whatever reason, I'm the messenger and I'm his prophet and here it is. And so that's what John, he's having one of those kind of Old Testament sort of prophetic calling experiences. In fact, and then look at verse 3. Here's, here's how he describes God on his throne. He says, the one who sat there, the one who sat on the throne, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, which are both types of quartz, sort of clear stones, beautiful sort of quartz and crystal. He then says, a rainbow resembling an emerald surrounded, encircled the throne. Now, not only then does John have an experience like the Old Testament prophets of getting to see God, but what's interesting here is he then also uses Old Testament prophetic language to describe what he sees. So not only does he experience what they experience, but he uses some of their imagery to describe what he's seeing as well. Uh, let me do this. Put a bookmark here in Revelation 4. We're going to come back to it. I'd like to go back and just quickly look at two Old Testament prophets who had an experience of seeing God on his throne and just kind of get a flavor for this type of literature. Turn back to the book of Ezekiel chapter 1. 
Let's look at two. We're going to look at Ezekiel, then we'll look at Daniel. But first, Ezekiel chapter 1. It's on page 820, if you're using a pew Bible. Ezekiel was an Old Testament prophet. Early 6th century B.C. Um, And Ezekiel had a vision and a calling from God. He also saw God on His throne. Page 820 in the Pew Bible, Ezekiel chapter 1. Now in his vision, he didn't get sucked up to heaven. It's more like heaven came down and sat on him. Okay, so, But he still saw God. So look at verse 4 of Ezekiel chapter 1. He says, I look and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. An immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. So there's this sort of glowing, shining tempest with these angelic creatures in it. Go down to verse 10. You get a glimpse of these creatures. It says their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of the eagle. And such were their faces. And they had wings and they're flying around. So these strange angelic Beings, you know, just like a king, see, in, you know, in the movies, the king has his court and he has people standing in the court. Well, here's the angelic beings. They're part of the royal entourage. Um, look at verse uh, 22. Let's jump down a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but notice that there's something else here. So you have these angelic beings in this theophany. Over them is this weird thing. Look at verse 22. Spread above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse sparkling like ice, and awesome. And then there's something above the expanse. Look down at verse 25. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. And above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw uh, that from what appeared to be his waist up, He's just struggling for images here. He looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him. And like the appearance of a rainbow. There's the rainbow imagery. In the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. Daniel had a similar vision. Turn to the next book. Daniel comes after Ezekiel. Page 882. 882. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Just want to quickly show you one more Old Testament prophet before we go back to Revelation. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel was a prophet. Daniel had a vision of the throne room of God. Daniel got to be welcomed into the royal court. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. It says, As I looked... Thrones were set in place. There again, thrones, right? We keep seeing the thrones in place. The Ancient of Days took His seat. That's God. And again, here's this brilliant person. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of His head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before Him. Thousands upon thousands attended Him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Again, another vision of God on His throne. Different imagery, but the same brilliant, terrifying, glorious being reigning over the world. Now if you go back to Revelation 4, go back to our verse, verse 3. Actually, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit. 
And there before me was a throne in heaven. There's the throne with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow uh, resembling an emerald encircled the throne. So all of these prophets see the same thing, though they kind of use different language to describe it. They're in heaven. There's a throne. There's someone on the throne. And the person on the throne pretty much just blows them away. And, you know, they try to use different images. One guy's like, it was like fire and glowing metal and rainbow. And the other guy's like, it was like white wool and shining white hair. And, and John says, oh, no, no, it was like the gleaming precious stones, like quartz with light shining through it and a rainbow and these colors, you know. But, so they're using different kind of imagery, but it's the same idea. It's this awesome, unspeakably glorious king seated on his throne. They're just sort of blown away. You know, I kind of think of it like this. Imagine if you looked up at the sun and there was a person sitting, sitting in the sun. You know, how would you describe it? You'd be like, it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, let's see, there's, oh, there's someone out there. It's really bright. And, you know, you kind of get that sense that they're trying to describe it, but they're just grasping for earthly images to explain this glorious God that they're beholding. What an image. But God is not just there alone. There is a heavenly court around Him. Look at verse 4. It says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, who are these folks? They do not appear in any of the Old Testament visions. So who are these 24 elders? Why are they on their own thrones? I think who these people are is I think they're a symbol or a picture of all of God's people from the Old and the New Testaments. This is sort of the, the people of God symbolized in heaven. Uh, and probably the key there is that there's 24 of them. You know, when you look at numbers in the book of Revelation, numbers are very symbolic. Anytime you see a number, you've got to figure out what it means. It's usually not a literal number. It's usually some kind of figurative. You know, so what do you think of when you think of 24? I know, Jack Bauer. Um, not that 24. Uh, you know, when you think of 24 in the Bible, what do you think of? Well, it's not really a common number in the Bible, but it's made up of two common numbers, 12 plus 12. There's the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, you have the new Israel, the church, founded upon the 12 apostles. And so probably these are a symbol of God's people, Old and New Testament. Notice that they're elders. Who are elders? Elders are leaders of God's people who represent God's people. Uh, notice that the elders wear white robes, Gold crowns, they sit on thrones. We just finished studying for the last two months, chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus promises Christians who stay faithful to Him gold crowns, white robes, seated on thrones. So the elders are, are sort of wearing and doing the things that Christians are promised to stay faithful. So I think what it is, is it's a, sort of a symbolic picture of the people of God glorified in heaven as represented by these heavenly elders. But that's not all there is. Look at verse 5. It says, From the throne came... We've got three things here. Number one, flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. So there's like a thunderstorm. Number two, there's seven lamps blazing. And then verse 6, number three, there's a sea of glass. So again, there's these different heavenly images. First of all, you have the rumblings and the thunder and the lightning, which often in Revelation, as we'll see, is are images of judgment. When God would come in judgment, He would often come with thunder and lightning and people would be terrified. So here's God, not just a king, but He's a judge. And there's, there's a storm behind Him of judgment that He holds in His hands. And then there's these seven 
lamps, uh, the, the seven uh, lamps, which we're told are the seven spirits of God, which is, I think, is another way of saying the Holy Spirit. Not that there's seven Holy Spirits, but that it's like the Holy Spirit in all of His workings. You know, seven is a number of completeness in the Bible, Old and New Testament. So, so here's the Holy Spirit there, burning like a lamp. So it's not only a courtroom image and a royal throne room image; it's kind of a temple image. And then the third thing is there's a sea of glass. Clear as crystal. Remember that from Ezekiel? That you had the four living weird creatures, whatever they were. And then you have this, the firmament above them. And then the throne. So here it is again. There's some kind of sea of glass in front of God's throne. It's just an awesome picture. And then finally, there's something else here in this picture. You've got the four weird animals. It says, In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like a man. The fourth, like a flying eagle. You know, what are those? That's just some kind of angelic beings. I'm not, I don't know for certain. Um, now, some of you may be close readers, and you're like, wait a minute. In Ezekiel, each individual living creature had four faces of those. But here in Revelation, each one has its own face. You know, what's going on here? Look, this is figurative prophetic prophetic imagery you can't read this like an engineering document all right this is this is figurative visionary language all right and, and so it's fluid and, and it's it, it, the real question isn't why is it this there and, and that in this place it's more like what does it mean that's the real question and the answer is i'm not really sure what it means <laughs> the best thing i've heard in reading commentators is some have suggested that it's uh, just as those 24 elders sort of symbolize God's people, these four living creatures sort of symbolize all of the living creatures on the earth. You know, everything God has made is sort of represented there. All the different animals, all the living creatures that God has put on this planet, they're sort of symbolized in these angelic beings. You know, there's four of them. There's a symbolic number. Four in the Bible and in other cultures is sort of a symbol of universal totality, like the four points of the compass the four winds, the four corners of the earth. So the idea is maybe these are all the animals and everything God's created on the earth kind of summed up and and represented by these angelic beings who then worship God and praise Him. But what a picture it is. It it, it is just breathtaking. You know, it's an awesome vision. Speaking of sci-fi movies, did anyone see Avatar? I loved Avatar. Oh, so good. You know what my favorite part of Avatar was? Just... Just the scenery, you know, it, it's, it's this whole, if you don't know the movie, you don't have to see it, but it's this whole other world that they visit. And, and this world they create is so breathtakingly beautiful. It was, that was my favorite part. It was just, I felt like I was in another world. I wanted to go live there. And I was like, it was so amazing. And after the movie, my wife said to me, she loves sci-fi too, so we get along that way. And uh, she said, you know, if, if human beings can use computers to imagine up that kind of a world, I wonder what God will make in the new heavens and the new earth. And I was like, I was like, wow, yeah. And, and so here you have a vision, and I would suggest this vision that John sees is even better than 3D IMAX. This incredible vision of who God is on His throne. And it's breathtaking and it's awe-inspiring. But I want to point out to you one final thing in this vision, which is notice the through line running throughout the vision. Notice there's this thread that runs through the whole thing that unifies it. Yeah, there's elders and creatures and 
fire and all these things. But there's something that runs through the whole thing. It's a repeated word. Over and over we see this thing again and again. And I would suggest it's the central message of chapter 4. And it's a repeated word. It's, and I'll kind of give you a hint. It occurs 14 times in this chapter. And one of the principles of biblical interpretation is if you see a repeated word or phrase, chances are that's the main message you should be getting. <laughs> you know, it makes it simple for us. If it's repeated, that's probably the main message. And the repeated word here is what? It's the word throne. Again and again, it's the throne of God that's at the center of this vision. Go back to verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne. Verse 3, And the appearance of the one who sat there on, uh, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Verse 4, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning. Before the throne, seven lamps. Verse 6, also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And so this whole vision is, is situated in relationship to the throne. It's like the throne is at the center and everything is either taking place around it, under it, above it, in front of it, beside it, from it. But it's the throne of God. It's the center of this vision. And like I said, whenever something gets repeated over and over in the Bible, it's, it's a help to people who are kind of slow like me on the uptake. Oh, wait a minute. I hear the throne. Maybe this has something to do with the point of this passage. It's God's throne. What, why is His throne emphasized? What's, what does the throne mean? This is one we can all get. It means God's the King. He's sovereign. And He rules over all. The universe, thank God, is not a democracy. I would hate to see the universe in our hands. The universe is a monarchy, and the king is overly qualified to run it. He is good, and he is wise, and he is the only one worthy to run this universe. He is a good king. He reigns over everything. You and I are not God. He is God. You know, there's this kind of belief out there uh, that's sort of, you kind of hear it in our culture. It's sort of new agey, kind of Oprah theology. And it's, it's this idea that, that, you know, you and I are really God. Have you guys heard this? You know, you're God and I'm God. And if you want to find God, just kind of listen to your voice inside. I mean, people, that is just like, that's like saying, just drive your car off the cliff if you want to find God. I mean, it's crazy. Look, in case you were wondering, I'll make it really clear. You're not God. <laughs> and neither am I. I mean, if we were God, then God must be the devil. Because look at us. We're a mess. We're not God. We're animated dust held together by His power every second as a gift. And He's God. He owes us nothing. We owe Him everything. We are subject to Him but he's not a tyrant, he's not a despot. He is the good, glorious king of the universe against whom we have rebelled and rejected. And like me with, you know, Johnny Pesky, who's that? Who's God? You know, it's like, are you kidding me? Are you ki- I don't know if I believe in God. Well, you're lucky he believes in you or you wouldn't exist. You know, it is his mental act of thinking you that keeps you in reality to sit there and doubt his existence. He's God. He is the King. He's the Lord. And we owe Him 
everything. He's seated on His glorious throne. What a comfort this must have been to those churches to whom Revelation was written. Going through all their trials and tribulations, these churches in Revelation living underneath the, the, the murderous thumb of Caesar in Rome. Caesar thought he was Lord. Caesar ruled over these people. He was the Emperor Domitian at the time. Emperor Domitian saying, you must worship me or die. I mean, and here's these Christians sort of struggling under this, feeling like puny and small. And why is this happening? And I, I can't lose my job for my faith. I can't go to jail for my faith. Who's going to provide for my family? And they're in all this suffering. And it's like, where is God in all this? Caesar seems to have so much power. And what a, a privilege to sort of be lifted above that in chapter 4 and have God say, I am in charge. I am sovereign. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And even in our trials and difficulties, He's ruling over us. Brothers and sisters, that's a message we need today just as much as they ever needed it. With all of our anxieties, our issues, our worries, how important it is to just come back and get re-centered on the throne, to, to have God again at the center and to say, He is Lord, He loves me, and He has a purpose even for my suffering. Even in the midst of my trials, He is God and He is Lord. I was talking this week to uh, one of our Haitian brothers was talking to Pierre here in the church, and we were talking on the phone, and several members of our church were from Haiti, and you know, just saying, like, how you doing? How's your family? And I think most of his family is, is safe. I think he, he lost one cousin, but, you know, it, it's just so helpless. Like, what do you do for the people in Haiti? It's like our army can barely get there, and we, we just feel kind of helpless. What do we do? How do we help them? And so we were just kind of talking about all these things. And then, then Pierre asked me a question that kind of caught me off guard. I probably shouldn't have, but it did. He said, do you have a particular scripture that comes to mind that would that could help us as we think about Haiti. And I was sort of like, oh, I, a pastor, I should probably have these things already thought through. But, but I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even think of that. But then suddenly the Lord brought a scripture to my mind. And it was the scripture that, that I, I clung to uh, during 9-11 that really helped me. It's a scripture about the sovereignty of God sitting on His throne. It's Psalm 46. Put a bookmark here. You've got to read it. Psalm 46. It's on page 559 in the Pew Bible. It's all about God's sovereignty. Psalm 46, page 559. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. You know, the world is in chaos, but God is sovereign. And if we trust Him and we know Him, we know that he's in, we're in His hands and He has a plan for us. Whether in life or in death, we're His children. Verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Brothers and sisters, that's your home. Not this world. That's our home. And nothing can touch the city of God. We're already there in our hearts. 
Verse 6, nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts His voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He's all the security I need in the midst of trials. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations He has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. And then one of my very favorite verses in the Bible, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Just be still and know that He is God. He will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I love that verse. Jeremy, shut up. Sit down. Be still. And just know that God is sovereign. And we need to take all of our turmoil and all of our angst and all of our fears and all of our worries about the economy or the politics or the health or whatever and just say, He is God. He is sovereign. And how much more so should we as Christians trust this? If our Old Testament brothers and sisters could believe it, how much more should we know it? Because we have the cross. you know. And on the cross, God took the greatest evil and the greatest tragedy ever in the history of the world, which was the crucifixion of the Son of God, the most evil wrong ever perpetrated by anyone. You think you've been wronged. You think you've got things unfair happen to you. This was the Holy One being crucified by sinful men. And God used that evil event, the most heinous injustice ever, for the greatest possible good we can imagine, which is salvation. It's through the death of Jesus that we're forgiven. It's only through the blood of Jesus and by trusting in Him that we can be saved. So out of that great evil came the great good of saving the rebels like me who deserve to be on the cross. But instead, God put His Son there to save the rebels. It's amazing. I love what Peter... don't have to turn there, but I love what Peter says in Acts chapter 4. He says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against Your holy servant Jesus. Then, I, then here, get this verse. They did... So in crucifying Jesus, they did what Your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. What happened to Jesus was God's perfect plan for our ultimate good. And so, I just have to be still and know that He is God and daily trust Him. When we can learn to be still and know that He is God, when we can learn to just focus on His sovereignty and trust Him, when we start to get just the tiniest little peephole glimpse of His majestic glory and beauty, and leave behind all these lame little visions of God that we have and see God as He really is, as the Lord, something's going to happen to you. Something's going to happen to you. Something's going to start coming up inside of you when you really see God for who He is. You won't have to fake it. You won't have to force it. It's just going to happen. It's called worship. You will begin to praise His name from a sincere and glad heart. Look back at Revelation 4. Let me just wrap up the text here. Verse 8. Each of the four living creatures... Alright, so we're back to these weird animals. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under His wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty 
who was and is and is to come. He's holy, holy, holy. So it blows me away because I'm sinful, sinful, sinful. I'm selfish, selfish, selfish. And He's holy, holy, holy. Does that sound familiar, by the way? That actually comes from yet another Old Testament story where a prophet was called and came into God's throne room. It's the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, where it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And there are these flying seraphim around Him. And what were the seraphim crying? They're crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Just like that song we sang earlier. That's right from Isaiah 6. And so here John appropriates that language. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They just, it just comes out of them. And this is the cool thing. I look at verse right before that. It says, day and night they never stop saying. Isn't that cool? It, it never quits. It just goes on, on. They never like lean over to each other and be like, how many times do we have to say this? <laughs> I'm sick of saying this. You know? It never gets old. You know, it's kind of like, I thought it was sort of like the eternal standing O. And have you ever um, you've been in a standing ovation for somebody and everyone jumps up and they're like, you know, and, and it kind of grows and everyone's like, yeah, and it gets into it. And then, you know, maybe it goes on for a minute and it's really strong and really loud. But after a minute, what starts to happen? You know, people start to die off a little. And then there's that weird sort of social thing that's going on where everyone's like, how much longer should we do this? And you kind of start looking around and you sense other people are slowing down. It's like, okay, okay, we're almost done. Okay, okay, we're done. And everyone quits, right? Because you just can't do the standing O forever. And then, you know, the guy, you know, who you're doing it for is like, well, thank you very much. I, I really didn't deserve that. That was very kind of you. And, you know, we have these sort of social rituals we go through. The thing about God is, God would never say, that's very kind of you. I don't deserve that. He actually does deserve it, you know? And, and he deserves eternal praise. And apparently in his presence, when the ovation starts, it never stops because you never get tired of it. And, and the more you praise him and the more you see of him, rather than tiring out, you just get fueled for more and more. And the more you know of the Lord, the more you want to praise him. It, 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 it energizes you and the praise goes on and on forever. No one in heaven is going, boy, this is getting old. I mean, they're like, we're just getting started. You know, like... Amazing grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. It doesn't seem to be a problem. Everyone wants to just praise His holy name because He's so great. C.S. Lewis described it as peeling an onion. You peel back the layers and the layers. And with an onion, the more you peel, the smaller it gets. But God is the opposite. He's like an onion. The more you peel back of who He is and His character, actually the bigger it gets. So the further in you go with the onion of God's glory, the more great and massive it is and the more you want to peel it. And faster and faster and more and more. And, you know, praise His name. The ovation never ends. Now, of course, that triggers, that triggers the 24 elders. So I almost, almost said here. Look at verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, all right, that triggers these guys. They fall down before Him. So they're falling down a lot who sits on the throne. And they worship Him who reigns forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. You are worthy. I love that. You're worthy, God. He's worthy of the eternal standing. Oh, 
God is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our lives. It doesn't matter if you are sick as a dog or healthy as a horse. He's still worthy of your praise. It doesn't matter if you are out of work and broke or whether you got a great job. He's still worthy of your praise. It doesn't matter if you're depressed and struggling emotionally or, or if you're you know, strong emotionally and full of joy. He's worthy of our praise. That's why we gather here Sunday mornings, not for, for our own little benefits. We're here because He's worthy to be praised. And so we gather here, first and foremost, not for our emotions, not for our needs, but because He's worthy of all our praise and our worship. And of course, when you praise Him, there's a blessing. Of course, He blesses you too. But we're here because He is worthy and we need Him. And we need to praise Him. That's what worship is. It's being satisfied in who God is and being sustained by who God is. And it just comes out in praise. Our Lord and God, You're worthy to receive the glory, honor, and power. For You created all things and by Your will they were created and have their being. God is our life. And He's our joy. And so we praise Him. Not because He needs us, but because we need Him. And He's the only thing that can really fulfill the void in our hearts. So here's the closing question for you. What are you worshiping? We all worship something even if we don't go to church. My agnostic and atheist friends are all worshipers. They just might not use that language. But we all have something that is at the center of our affections, something we esteem, something in which we look to for our direction and value. Maybe it's our own reason and intellect, or or maybe it's our money, or maybe it's a, a, a child, or something else that we put at the center of our lives, or our jobs, or a hobby, or sports, or movies, or whatever. But But there's something there. Just to change the sports metaphor a little bit, we did baseball before. Let's think football. Think of being in Gillette Stadium, all those seats, all those press boxes looking down at the field, all the lights pointed down in the field. There's the field at Gillette Stadium. There's the 50-yard line. And there's the center of the field where all the attention is focused. And the question I'm asking you is, in your field, what's at the center? What's at the center? And it's either God or it's something else. It's either Jesus or it's an idol. Christ needs to be the center. He is the center. (laughs) The question is, do we perceive Him that way? That's probably a better way to put it. He's a sinner whether we believe it or not. It doesn't matter what we think. He's the king. The question is, will I orient my life around him? Will I continue to live, live under the old sinful Ptolemaic model of the universe where the earth is the center and all the planets go around it? Or will I have a kind of spiritual Copernican revolution where Copernicus discovered that the sun was at the center and all the planets revolved around it where I start to see Christ as the center and I I just orbit Him and He's the one who keeps me going and keeps me alive. Who do you worship? May I suggest that you are made to worship God. You're made to live for Him. Whoever you are and whatever your life is, that's what your life is about. And so let us repent of our idolatrous self-worship and let us come to Jesus and afresh, no matter where you're at in your life, and just say, Jesus, I want to see you and live for you and worship your name. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I thank You that You are the King of kings, that You are the Lord of lords. You are the only man, You are the only religious leader who was crucified, buried, raised, ascended to the Father's right hand and is returning someday. Lord, we thank You that You are our Savior, that You are the King. And so we praise You and, and we pray, Jesus, that You would help us to orient our lives around You, that we would worship You because You are worthy. Lord, fill us up with worship and praise for who You are. We pray that our whole lives, not just what we say Sunday morning in church, but that our whole lives would be a living act of worship in all that we say and do. Oh, Jesus, recaptivate us with Your glory and Your majesty. Help us not to be satisfied with all the lesser dumb things that we get infatuated with. Instead, Lord, let us be satisfied in You alone. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.